If you can recall back to late September with me, uh, when we were last in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, I, I know that's been a while. Uh, at this point, uh, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. So Jesus has raised him. Uh, he did so with the explanation in his prayer to our Heavenly Father in verse 42, uh, stating, uh, stating that he, who, he sees it will believe that he is sent of the Father. So it is for those to see, and by seeing this miracle, that they would believe. In verse 14, he also declares to his disciples that he is glad that he was not there when Lazarus died because he says that he will use this miracle for them to believe in him. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John states, but, there, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose of the recording of these miracles and the performance by Jesus of these miracles or signs are clearly for us to believe, for those at that time to believe, and by believing have eternal life in Christ. But going back a bit further, a few months before we were in 11, we were also in chapter 10. In chapter 10, verses 11, 15, and 17, in declaring himself the good shepherd, Jesus prophesies that he will lay down his life for his sheep. In our first verse this morning, verse 45, uh, we read and see the effectiveness of the miracles. As it reads, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But we also read in the following verses, verses 46 and 47, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Without a doubt, what we see here is a polarizing effect. This miracle has divided them, those the believing and those unbelieving. We see those who are coming to faith, and we see those whose hearts are being more hardened against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is of great importance for us to notice the change or the development in the hearts of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who make up this Sanhedrin council. In chapter 3 of John's Gospel, we read of Nicodemus and his late-night visit to Jesus, in which he says in verse 2, he says, Rabbi, he addresses him as teacher, and says, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So it's obvious as we read this that they recognize that he is sin of God. And it's obvious as he says, that, that the he be Nicodemus, that he has been sent. Some people would say that he was sent in secret. And some people would say that he came at night simply because Jesus was so busy with the people during the day. Both can certainly be seen in that. But what we should take from that is to know and to understand that he was recognized as being sin of God. 
One could say that at a minimum, they understood that he was a prophet in that he was sent of God. So the miracles and signs that Jesus is performing are self-evident that he is of the Father. They all recognize this. But there's an obvious progression in their hate and hostility for Jesus. But if he be sin of God, why? Why this hate and hostility? Why would they plot to kill Jesus? The answer to this question is found in the following verse, verse 48, which says, If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. As John 6.15 records, at this point, the high priest had, and the Pharisees were acutely aware of the fact that many of the people wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. His popularity had grown and had spread throughout the region to the point that they looked to Jesus as an earthly king. And they desired to be rescued from this Roman oppression. And so their idea, of course, was to seize him and to make him king. But, of course, we know that Jesus was not sent here to do that. We are very aware of that. Jesus is a true threat to them. He very well could have been made their king. <coughs> the intentions of their hearts are veiled in this language that they use of what is best for the nation. They try to focus on that, what is best for the nation, but their true motivation is found in their fear of losing their power and position of authority. Their knowledge of Christ being sent of God makes clear the evil of their hearts. We must not give them a pass and believe that they didn't have the knowledge, that they simply looked at this man as just a man. We have to make sure that we understand that he truly, they truly understood that this was a man's sin of God. It would be easy for us to come to the conclusion that they did indeed know him to be Messiah. But they rejected him. The hardness of their hearts continued to grow just as Pharaoh's did as Pastor Ben has been preaching us in, to us through Exodus. We must not give them this pass. Their planning and future action is a direct rebellion against God. They refused to believe in Christ as the Messiah. Theirs was a my kingdom come and not thy kingdom come response to the raising of Lazarus. Theirs was my will, not thine be done response to this sign of signs this, that was performed by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and they refused. They wanted their kingdom, and they wanted their power. It was a hideous evil of all evils that grew in proportion as a satanic stench in the words of Caiaphas as he arrogantly stood full of pride and hate for God and said in verses 49 and 50, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. These words were so full of the hell that was in his heart. They must have burned his tongue 
as he spoke them. His breath must have smelled of the fires of hell as he said this. But just as Balaam's donkey, he prophesied. His words, though they be his own, that were so full of hate, they were directed by our sovereign Lord. Look with me at verse 51 and 52. It says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Why was Caiaphas high priest of this year, that year? We look at how things were structured at that time, and history teaches us that it was actually the Romans who selected who would serve as that high priest that year. And so it would be easy for us to think in our minds, well, it was the Romans who chose Caiaphas to stand in that position. But because we know in, in what God's Word teaches We see that behind that decision by the Romans was actually the decision of God to place Caiaphas in that position, to have him in that position, to actually have his only begotten son killed. Why was his heart so turned against our Lord and Savior? The answer is found all across the words of Scripture. We find it from in the beginning to the grace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. Indeed, from Genesis to Revelation, we see our God fully in control at all times. When things look to be flying apart, we know that our God is fully in control. There is nothing that is out of His hands. This was God's plan all along. God did not have to figure out a plan B in response to what Caiaphas said. Rather, it was Caiaphas who was stating, unbeknownst to him, God's eternal decree. And God's plan did not fail. From Joseph's declaration, what you meant for evil, God meant from good, in Genesis 5.20, to Peter at Pentecost, preaching that God delivered his son into the hands of evil men to be crucified. In Acts 23, it is a fulfillment of exactly what God had planned. God's decree always comes to pass. As it is said in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This ruling highest court declared and fulfilled God's plan for Jesus to die in place of his children. This perfect, spotless lamb would lay down his life for his sheep just as he had said he would in John chapter 10. Our God is on the throne, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? The irony here is that all these passages, the members of this ruling council would have known well. These were the things that they had learned and had studied. They were scholarly men who knew every jot and every tittle of the law and the prophets. But they didn't know God. They didn't know him at all. They testified that God created 
the heavens and the earth. But in their pragmatism, they demonstrated that it was the Romans who actually ruled the earth. How foolish for them to profess God, but doubt his reign. But again, it was because they wanted their kingdom come and their will be done, not that of the one that they professed to be their heavenly father. So we worship a true and living God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Even through the sinfulness of men, this being the greatest example that we can look to. So I challenge you this morning, if your heart has not laid claim to these truths about our God, then it is, as it has been rightfully said, your God's not big enough. You're not seeing God as in complete control of everything, of all of history. He is in control of all of it. He has planned all of it for himself to be glorified, and he will be glorified. Through God's direction of the evil hearts of Caiaphas, evil heart of Caiaphas and of these Pharisees and these Sadducees, God's plan of redeeming for himself a people would be realized. It was the will of God that he would crush his son. So what is the great effect of this, what seems to us to be this maniacal, unhinged plan of self-preservation that this Sanhedrin uh, council has plotted against our Lord? The plan that the providence of God proposed for his church, it is namely the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord. His substitutionary death on the cross of Calvary is what God's aim is in this. His suffering and dying in our place. This is a very personal thing. And I hope that each one of you sees it this, that way this morning. It was not that God or that Christ died simply for the opportunity that you might accept him. It is that he guaranteed for himself a people. He guaranteed by his blood being shed on the cross that you, if you are indeed in Christ Jesus, would come to be a son and daughter. And he died in my place. And he died in your place. It is very personal. And he died to pay the ransom to purchase you if you are indeed his. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, we have been bought with a price. This was the highest price. The debt that none of us could ever pay, Jesus paid for us. The perfect sin sacrifice, he laid down his life willingly because no man took it from him. This substitutionary death is the centerpiece of our faith. It is the rock. He is the rock on which we cling. His death for our eternal life is what this substitution is. It was not, again, a price that was paid that we might become sons and daughters. It was a price that was paid that guaranteed that we would indeed become sons and daughters. 
As Caiaphas prophesied, Christ died for the nation. But not just for the ethnic nation of Israel, but for the spiritual children of Abraham, for the elect, for the true church. Jesus' death sealed the covenant. The covenant was sealed in, the, in Christ's blood. His death was, as the Apostle John has said, for the children of God that are scattered abroad, indicating by this statement the future spreading of the gospel that was to go into all the nations and to draw by God's work alone the Gentiles for whom he would gift faith of every nation, of every tribe, and every tongue, just as Revelation says. Another great irony that we see in this is that in just 40 short years, the Jews would lose the nation that they desperately sought to hang on to by killing Christ. But certainly it was not lost forever. Just when we look at history and we see what has taken place for the Jewish people, and we see that God has still preserved them and they still exist, that in itself is a testimony to our God who rules and our God who reigns. He has put his hand of protection on them. What we see in this passage this morning is God using those who reject Christ to fulfill his plan together to himself those who were numbered among the elect. From this scripture, I'd like for us to take a look at two simple applications. Application number one. We should be prayerfully resting in God's divine providence in our lives. So number one, we should be resting in God's divine providence in our lives. When I think of this, I always question myself and say, so why so often do I find myself reacting the way I do to things? Sometimes it seems as though things are spinning out of control. And so my natural reaction to seeing those things fly out of control, I want to try to fix it myself. I start interjecting things, and what I find is that I've not done what I should, which is to prayerfully rest in knowing that His divine providence and His divine plan is in place. And the thing about it is, guys, is that it is always a plan that has existed forever. There's not one thing in our lives that God is not fully in control of and that he didn't know before he created us. All these things that we experience, he uses that he might be glorified in us. A plan that has always existed. It's always existed. And as we saw earlier in this chapter, his plan is always in his time. And it is always perfect in his time. Just as he allowed Lazarus' body to lay dead for four days so that he would be glorified. Just as Jesus, as we read in the end of this scripture, withdrew to Ephraim. It is always in his time because Jesus, as he understood and knew at this time, it was not his time yet. And that's why he withdrew. 
His providential plan is promised to us in the words the Holy Spirit spoke and the Apostle Paul penned. One that is for us a memory verse. Most of us know this. Romans 8, 28 and 29, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And this scripture brings us to our second point. Point number two, trusting that he indeed is conforming us into the image of Christ Jesus. We should be trusting that he is conforming us into the image of Christ Jesus. As you struggle day after day, as I, as I do, fighting and often feeling as though you're losing the battle against your sin, I feel that often. It's such a struggle. But we should take heart. Each one of us who is in Christ Jesus should take heart. Because we know that it is substitution that is the central point. It is the centerpiece of our faith. So that when we are struggling in that sin, that we are not looking at our sin, but we are looking to Christ, the one who indeed has defeated that sin. Often, we, reach to, we come so far to the point that we even doubt our own salvation as we struggle with our sin. And that, of course, is the work of the accuser, the evil one who wants us to always be struggling with this. But I think of the words that Martin Luther said, one of my favorite quotes of Martin Luther. He said, so when the devil throws, in, throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Is that not encouraging? That is how we fight. When we fight, we use those words. We speak to ourselves the Psalms that remind us that our soul should not be cast down because we have victory, not of ourselves. None of us can boast of victory of ourselves, but our victory has been won by Christ through what he has done. God is faithful and he's just to forgive. And as you come to the table to share in communion this morning, this table is set for all of us who are in the battle. For us to share in his victory. For he has paid the price in our stead so that you who have been scattered abroad have been gathered unto him. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are indeed children of God. Let us pray.